This is your host, Tim Powell, from the Oil & Gas Council. Today, we are joined by Josh Camp, President and CEO of Perpetual Production, a private equity-backed minerals and royalties company focused on the stack and Permian Basin. During the episode, Josh discusses the various ways his team approaches mineral buying opportunities in order to de-risk underwriting and formulate an information edge on their acquisition strategy. Let's jump into the episode and hear what Josh has to say. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. No, so um, as you know, we want to start out with a little personal background so people have context who are listening. Can you talk about where you grew up, where you went to school, how you got in the industry, or maybe you came from a different uh, a different industry, a different part of the space, uh, and then ultimately how you got into minerals? Yeah, sure. So quick background, uh, born and raised in St. Louis. Both of my parents were in the healthcare industry so never grew up with a third or fourth generation oil gas wildcatter stories my grandpa never told me that you know to never sell my mineral rights and really i never knew much about the oil and gas space until college i went to school at smu here in dallas and i took an investment banking job with jp morgan in between my junior and senior year down in houston because it was down in houston It was in the National Resources Group, and really that was my first interaction or first foray into the space. And, you know, I think the thing that immediately attracted me to the industry was just the amount of technical data, the amount of technical information that was just at my fingertips. And candidly, none of which at that point in time I understood or really knew how to successfully analyze. And so I think for me, that's what kept bringing me back to the industry was just there's all this information there's so much to know. There's such a steep learning curve. And frankly, I wanted to get up that learning curve. And so went back to investment banking, did about four years down in Houston, uh, split time between JP Morgan and BMO. And then, you know, I think early in my career, most people coming out of energy investment banking are faced with the, do I stay in investment banking or do I go to the buy side? And for me, I think there, because there was that, desire to kind of continue learning more on the technical side of the business, I kind of went a different route and said, okay, well, how can I continue to learn more on the finance side, continue to hone in on those skills and and really bridge that knowledge base with a deep technical understanding of the industry. And so for me, I think what made a lot of sense was let's go work for a portfolio company of an energy private equity fund. And Ultimately, what that ended up looking like is I took a job at Cosmos Energy here in Dallas, uh, backed by Warburg and the Blackstone Group, you know, two of the largest private equity funds in the world. Uh, It was an offshore exploration company, very, very different than what I'm doing now. Uh, But in terms of developing a deep technical understanding of business, I mean, go and sit around offshore explorationists, geologists. I mean, the, the appreciation that you develop for really understanding that the business starts and underwriting starts on the geological side of the business. I don't think I could have learned that anywhere else than really sitting in the room with these guys who are interpreting data miles beneath the uh, ocean floor. 
And so the guy who hired me at Cosmos, I'd been working there for about three years, and he actually had a connection to Aubrey McClendon through Duke. And this was about the same time that Aubrey was leaving CHK uh, after the Carl Icon ouster. And they got together and really developed what would become the blueprint for American Energy Partners, which was Aubrey's really second iteration in the oil and gas business after CHK. And, you know, he told me to stay put at Cosmos. And if American Energy Partners materialized, you know, there would be a job for me. And, you know, lo and behold, a few months after he said that, he called me and said, hey, you know, how you feel about moving to Oklahoma City? And my reaction at that point in time was, well, you know, I don't know much about the city. Doesn't seem like the greatest place ever. You know, I really like Dallas, but I took a step back and it was a very easy call, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to go work alongside Aubrey, build American Energy Partners really from the ground up. And so I packed up my stuff, moved up to OKC and really was with American Energy Partners from pretty much the start all the way through the unfortunate ending. And uh, my role at American Energy Partners, I worked as a director of finance, uh, kind of across the, the platform, really focused on the initial capitalization and incubation of new assets, new strategies, kind of underneath the American Energy Partners umbrella. So I was never really embedded with one of the business silos or one of the business subsidiaries outside of American Energy Minerals, which was obviously our minerals strategy. It was a $500 million JV with the Energy and Minerals Group. And it was really a strategy focused on buying ahead of the American Energy Partners drill bit. So following their rigs, using all their technical information to really build a minerals portfolio. Uh, as I mentioned, is about a $500 million equity commitment. We put about 90% of that to work over an 18-month time period to build over 100,000 net royalty acre position. So that's really how I got into the space. You had mentioned when you left banking, you wanted to continue to get that educational piece on the finance side, but do it through an, an oil and gas company. And so you work with Warburg and Blackstone indirectly. You're working with Energy Minerals Group, First Reserve and Oak Tree through the American Energy Partners umbrella. And we'll get into you know, some of the financial partners you work with um, at Perpetual Production, your current shop. So that, that theory played out well. I mean, you got a first row seat at some of the best shops in, in the game. Uh, and so I would say mission accomplished on that, right? And then to be able to work alongside right. Aubrey, there's regardless of what people's opinions are of him, he was a pioneer. And so that had to be an incredible uh, experience, right? Right, right. Well, and I think any job that you have, there's always learnings that you take away from it. And some of those are positive things that you would want to do yourself and apply to your own company. And you also learn some things that you would do a little differently. And for me, American Energy Partners really informed my view on the way that I wanted to run a minerals company. And really, my outlook for minerals and oil and gas in general really came from my time at American Energy Partners. And there's kind of two key principles that I took away from my time there. You know, I think one, and this is really specifically regarding minerals, but you can have the perfect information. You can have the perfect data edge. You can have rig schedules. You can have the technical data. 
and you can nail your underwriting, right? And you can de-risk the investment as much as humanly possible. But if the companies that you're buying under cannot execute their development plans, your information edge is worth absolutely zero. And so one thing that we do at Perpetual that's really important is we focus on the liquidity profiles, the cap structures, the debt maturity schedules of every company that we're buying under because it's not just are they a great operator, it's can they execute their plans. And if they can't execute their plans, then your investment is not what you underwrote it to. And so to me, it's very important to make sure that a high quality operator is not just defined by an operator who is a great technical operator, but they also need to have a good balance sheet and a strong liquidity profile. I think the second big learning from American energy partners is, you know, there's no reason to over financially engineer good rock. Good rock is good rock is good rock. Always let the rock speak for itself. There's no need to do anything cute or fancy on the financing front. Over equitize and always hedge. And if you do that, the returns of the rock will actually materialize. If you don't do that, if you overburden rock with debt that is unserviceable, then you're never going to let that good rock speak for itself. And so to me, those are the two huge learnings that I took away from my time at AEP. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You know, a follow up on that. I think that's a really smart way to approach the business. Do you take it a step further and look at the financial sponsors who are backing the operators and, you know, their patterns and behaviors are? You know, I've, I've had some calls recently where that has surfaced as something that, that needs to be analyzed. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's really important to understand where the money is coming from that these operators are using to go out and execute their development plans. Understanding who sits on their boards is important. Understanding if there's an activist shareholder in their stock is important because a lot of times we've seen activist shareholders in a very real way recently in Oxy, right? And I think what you can do is, is you can underwrite, like let's just take Oxy for instance, you can underwrite a plan of development in a certain area that Oxy is operating, but all of a sudden, if Carl Icahn comes in and says, well, hey, I want to do stuff differently, or I want to allocate capital here versus here, all of a sudden, where you were underwriting, that could get capital allocated away from it. Now, what I would argue is if you're buying in the core of the core, um, and you're buying and what you believe and you've done all the underwriting work and what you understand to be Oxy's best assets, the likelihood of that happening is probably pretty immaterial. But I do think that it's important to understand who is in the stock, who's on the board, because ultimately those are the decision makers. And in a draconian scenario, which by the way, we're in right now, you can see capital get allocated away from certain areas that you might have thought 
were great places to place money originally. Can you talk a little bit about when you were with um, American Energy Partners on the mineral side, the basins they had exposure in? I know it was a very diversified platform. No, uh, and you didn't get involved in the individual business units. You mentioned that, but just what basins they were in, I'm sure there were some learnings there just from being involved with the team and then how that ultimately formed your strategy when you started Perpetual. And can you give a little timeline too on when that was and who you partnered with and, and, the, and the business plan? Yeah, so at American Energy Minerals, we had a portfolio in Appalachia, uh, both the Utica and Marcellus. That was probably our largest position. Uh, we had a portfolio in the Permian that was primarily an override. And we had a portfolio in the Midcon that was really focused in stack. And a lot of what we did in stack was based on partnership that we had with our non-op company. And so we were able to use and apply a lot of the information from our non-op company into an investment thesis around stack and where the right areas were and where the core was. And so what happened was when we were thinking about forming perpetual, it was very clear where we needed to go back to. And that was the area that we were having a lot of success in and an area that frankly was probably our most recent area where we were deploying capital and that was stacked. And so we took the team, a smaller team from American Energy Minerals, we rolled out and we raised money about around going back into stack, using our name brand, using our reputation to kind of build a similar business model there. And so that team kind of changed and evolved over time. We spun out of American Energy Partners in September 2016. Uh, that's kind of when we shut the door. We got out on the road for about nine months, seeking to raise some private equity capital. And in June 2017 is when we closed our first private equity commitment with a fund named Castlake. They're a generalist investor, about $17 billion of assets under management out of Minneapolis. And so, you know, we kind of went right back into stack. We were able to go back to everyone that we knew and interacted with and said, hey, you guys remember us well. We're the same management team. You guys know how we do business. Well, we're back. We have capital and we're, we're ready to go. And so, you know, focus on the core of stack. And, you know, interestingly, the core of stack, if you're an outsider and you don't necessarily understand the inner workings or the technical side of stack, you know, stack has seemingly, the core at least, has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over time. Well, I'd say from everything that we did at American Energy Partners and then all the re-underwriting work that we did at Perpetual, we had a pretty detailed and scientific view of what the actual core was. And so, you know, our buy area when we got started back in June 2017 was literally 300 sections. And so a super rifle shot approach that worked really, really well for us. And through that kind of rifle shot approach, 300 sections or so, you know, we built about a 6,500 net royalty acre position in the overpressured liquids rich window of Blaine County. Last year, that asset did about $3 million of operating cash flow. And looking forward, we are about 85% hedged at greater than $55 through year in 2021. 
And, and how, how developed is that? I mean, a, a couple of ways to take it. One, I would love for you to speak to the importance of hedging. You know, a lot, a lot of folks don't talk about that in minerals. Um, you think of that more from the operating standpoint. But you're a finance guy and you understand what that is. And, you know, right now, if you're hedged, you're, you're grateful, probably wish you did more. And if, if, you, were, if you are not hedged, you're, you're obviously in, in, in a hole, right? Um, so right. Um, let's start with that on hedging and then I'll ask another question. Yeah, so the thing that's really difficult with hedging minerals is it's impossible to hedge kind of the undeveloped piece of minerals. It's not impossible, but you can obviously expose yourself to some financial liability by doing so because you don't necessarily have a great view of when wells are coming online. So what we really focus on is hedging the PDP, you can do it on an individual transaction by transaction basis, but there's kind of a cost benefit analysis that you have to run. So really the way that we've thought about hedging is go out, build the portfolio first. Once you have kind of a meaningful amount of production that you're able to hedge at that point in time, immediately start locking in hedges. And what we do again, like just normal straightaway swaps, it's really efficient and Again, because you don't control the drill bit, you don't control the production curve. I think trying to do three ways or two way callers, um, you know, I think that that gets a little more difficult. So we try to keep it pretty, pretty simple, frankly. Okay. And then the other question. So it sounds like, you know, in the beginning, you talked about core rock is core rock is core rock. From what, what from your seat, you believe you guys have assembled a position in the stack that reflects that. But, you know, from when you started to today, there's been some growing pains, we'll call them, in the mid-con. Um, some density yep. testing that, you know, got a lot of scrutiny. So if I'm a headline reader and I'm not in the know, if you may, and don't understand mm -hmm. all the details around the mid-con, and, you know, I'm a headline reader and I read stuff about the Permian, you know, I would probably say, why do I want to be in the mid-con right now? Everyone's running away. There's a lot of negative headlines. What's your comments on that and your kind of longer term view on the stack in general, but then in particular where you guys sit? Because all, all things are not equal, right? All, all areas, all you know, sections, all operators, et cetera. Right, right. So, yeah, look, that's a great question. I think to address your first part of that question, you know, why do you want to be in the MidCon today? To me, it's one of the only basins that has had an actual technical reset that has trickled down and actually reset on the ground market expectations. And if you just think back to what's happened in stack, these operators went out and, and paid up for the assets that they bought, not going to name specific names, but it really forced them to think about trying to put as many wells possible into these units that they're drilling. And so, you know, guys were trying to force 12 to 14 two-mile wells into a unit. Well, the stack is not that basin. I think at Perpetual, we've always known, and in our underwriting, we've always known that it's kind of a eight-ish wells per DSU basin. And a lot of guys were trying to push that. And so I think when we got started, you know, all the underwriting that we did, our, the max wells that we would attribute value to were eight wells. Even if we knew an operator was drilling 12 to 14, you know, we would only underwrite eight. And so when you think about what happened, 
these operators were trying to force 12 and 14. Parent-child issues were always going to be there. They're always going to be there. But, you know, you were seeing 50% parent-child degradation coming in on these 12 to 14 well pads. And so, you know, if you went out and underwrote 12 to 14 wells with little to no degradation, the on-the-ground pricing was just through the roof, right? We're talking about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 on a net mineral acre basis. Well, then a technical correction happens where all these operators figure out, oh, no, <laughs> this is not the optimal plan of development. This is not the MPV maximizing plan of development on a single session basis, you know. And so they figured it out pretty quickly. And there was a lot of science that went into it. But, you know, they dropped from 12 to 14 to 10. A bunch of people tried 10. They dropped to 8. And, you know, now you've really seen that operators out here, it's four to six wells. If you want consistent results, that's what operators have really figured out. And through that, if you think about underwriting 12 wells in the Merrimack with no degradation or underwriting four to six or eight wells with 30 or 40% degradation, the dichotomy between those two price points is massive, right? Like we're talking about $30,000 a net mineral acre going to probably eight to 10. And that's at $50 oil. Let's not even talk about it at 15. So what happened is a lot of the middlemen, a lot of the buyers, a lot of the guys who were just out there kind of flipping minerals to guys like us and other players in the basin, you know, a lot of these middlemen got squeezed and maybe they got overextended and maybe they had to go home and tell their wife and kids, hey, like we actually can't afford our lives anymore because I bet the house on these few deals and I got caught in the middle and I couldn't get the money that I thought I was going to get out of it. And so whether guys got squeezed like that or guys got squeezed because they realized that there's no margin for them to make on these specific deals, all the middlemen left. And so that's a long-winded way of saying, I think the mid-con is attractive, not at $15 oil, but in a kind of normal pricing environment, I think it's attractive because that reset, that technical reset happened, which forced a reset on the ground, which has finally made minerals affordable from a private equity standpoint. And I think it's the only basin, one of the only basins where you can go out and actually underwrite the wells that you know are going to be drilled, not put phantom NAV wells in there, and actually put together a very sizable position. The thing that's not great about the Midcon, even at $50 oil, is we're a derivative of the EMP space, right? And so when you saw the EMP space essentially flip from a production growth at all cost model to more of a free cash flow ROCE model that was really based on investors banging their fists and saying, hey, like we've been throwing money at you guys forever and you've been lining on fire. We haven't seen any returns. And so there was already a change going on in the industry where operators being forced to live within their means, adjust their CapEx budgets, and drill their highest returning inventory first. And so for operators that have better inventory, especially with where nat gas and NGLs were and where oil was pre-COVID, some of the operators in the basin had better inventory to drill. Continental had the springboard. Devon had the Delaware. And so it is the only basin, in my opinion, I think that you can go out and pay for, if there's four permits, 
you pay for four permits, and it doesn't matter if four more wells get drilled in the future. But I think that because of where the industry was going, even pre-COVID, from an opportunity set standpoint, I would argue that that's where the mid-con stack in particular is challenged. There's some great deals to do, but like you're not going to go out and build a $300 million portfolio in stack as it stands today just because of how the opportunity set has shifted. Yeah, so the punchline is the market's got efficient in the mid-con. There's a reset across the board. And there's opportunity there, but it's rifle shot, like you you had mentioned your strategy was. So let's talk about right. this kind of is a transition into 2.0 or, or next steps for you. And that's lessons learned and the fate of the Permian and using MidCon as, you know, the historical reference. Uh, you know, in our conversations, you believe the same thing that happened in the MidCon is about to happen in the Permian. I think COVID-19 is just speeding up that movie. Can you jump on, on that? Yeah, sure. So our second iteration, of Perpetual is called Perpetual Resources, and that's a JV with Silver Hill, and that's the same Silver Hill that was led by Kyle Miller and sold to RSP Permian in October 2016 for $2.4 billion. Great asset base in the heart of the Delaware Basin. And so, you know, when you think about going to different basins, looking at different strategies, Silver Hill obviously brings the technical side of, of the equation with all the data and the war chests that they have, plus all the relationships and the good reputation in the Delaware and in the Permian. They bring that to perpetual resources. We bring a very similar thing in the midcom, but as we've thought about kind of transitioning, going to other basins, what I just said would lead you to believe that our two high-grade areas are the Delaware and Scoop and Stack. And while that's true, I think the message that you know Kyle and myself and our respective teams are really standing by right now is there's a reset that needs to happen in the Delaware Basin. Stack, the reset has happened. The science, the testing is over. Everyone knows it's four to six wells in the Merrimack, maybe eight in some sections. I think what you're seeing in the Delaware is pretty similar to Stack. Like the Delaware has incredible hotspots and the hotspots are probably some of the best returning rock in the lower 48. However, Delaware is not a homogeneous system, right? Like you can go one section over in the Delaware and it's wildly different than what the other section looks like in terms of the Wolf Camp or the Bone Spring. I mean, pick your respective reservoir. And so I think not only do you really have to understand where those hotspots are, not only do you really have to have a rifle shot approach, but I think, you know, if you just look where the on the ground mineral market is, people are still paying for NAV. And I think it's really hard to pay for NAV, just given where the EMP market has gone in general, not understanding operators' future plans, not knowing how many wells are going to put in a section, but take it a step even further back, like the Concho Dominator pad, the parent-child issues are just not understood. The science is not there yet in the Delaware Basin. It's coming along, but to your point, Tim, I think COVID-19 and the Saudi-Russia price war, I mean, all it does is exasperate the problem. Like the Concho Dominator pad, it was certainly not going to be the last there's a lot of testing to figure out that, guess what? There's going to be degradation. And so 
there was already that technical correction that I mentioned in the stack that Kyle and myself and both of our respective teams have a firm view and thesis on that it was coming down the line. But I think now with where COVID has gone, now you're seeing a macro correction that's going to force operators from an MPV standpoint, like if and when prices do recover, and let's say they recover to 35 or 40 or 45 bucks a barrel, like in order to achieve the MPV maximizing results or returns, you have to understand that it's not forcing as many wells as you can into the Wolf Camp or into the Bone Springs. And so I think what this pandemic does, it forces operators to get smarter quicker And I also think what it does, and let's go to the on the ground market, there are a lot of people, a lot of middlemen running around in the Permian Basin playing the flip game. And a lot of those people are going to get squeezed because a lot of those people agreed to PSA a deal at this valuation and then market prices cratered. And so I think what all this does is is just bringing a reset to the Permian that's been long needed and that myself and the Silverhill team have been really kind of sitting on the sidelines, licking our chops over, just being ready to pounce when the market does come back and when it has actually fallen to what we would consider sustainable levels and more or less just means where we think that we can make risk-adjusted and outsized returns. And right now, the market's not there. I think the -the on-the-ground market is dead, and that's probably another conversation. But this pandemic, plus the technical correction that was already coming to the Permian, you know, I think it sets up really, really nicely for those with capital and for those who are willing to be patient to go into the Permian and actually be able to acquire acreage at sustainable price levels, not $20,000 a net royalty acre. Absolutely. I mean, listen, when whenever markets recorrect, those who have cash are in a great position to do great value buying. I know you guys were waiting for this, but I'm sure you are patting yourself on the back for forming that partnership with Silver Hill late last year, right? The timing of it was great. We're really excited about the partnership with Kyle and his team. If you think about Silver Hill and how they're set up, it's a really nimble, flexible mandate. And, you know, there's opportunities for them to form partnerships with the management teams. Like they've done with us, but you know they also have a mandate where they can directly invest in assets themselves. And so I think that sets up really nicely just in terms of some future partnership opportunities. And you know I'll just kind of leave it at that for the time being. Can you talk a little bit about the non-op royalties blended strategy that you're looking to do with Silver Hill? You know, from the sounds of it, you're taking a page out of the old playbook from your days at American Energy Minerals, right? Because that's what you guys were doing there is leveraging the data and the re- you had into the market through the non-op portfolio that Aubrey had? Yeah, look, I've probably been the biggest hater of non-op historically throughout my career, but all things reset. We, we keep going back to this word, the market resetting. And, you know, I do think without going too far into what our specific strategy is, if you think about all of the mineral companies out there that are backed by energy private equity funds, they have a mandate. It's a very strict mandate and they have non-competes and they're stuck in somewhat of a well-defined box. If you are a mineral company 
in the Permian Basin or in the Haynesville or in Appalachia. That's your sandbox. You're staying in it. And the ability to bring other strategies in to that, I think, is certainly challenging. Just given the flexible mandate that we have and our ability to pivot and kind of adjust with market conditions, I think there's some really interesting opportunities. And I think the non-op market has corrected or reset enough. And I think it's going to continue to reset where if you can buy a complimentary non-op asset in a basin that you know very well or you're targeting to go to and you really like and you've done the underwriting around and you can go buy that asset at a fair valuation, which I would argue is obviously you're not going to pay for upside. You're probably going to pay a discount valuation for PDP. If I can go buy that, hedge it out, lock in my returns on the non-op piece of the portfolio and then use that underlying information, use that underlying title to go out and build or continue a mineral campaign in a certain basin. I think that's really, really compelling. And I also think it's compelling because if you buy non-op in the right basins, like, yeah, I'm not gonna pay for any future development today, but that doesn't mean future development is not going to happen. And when it does happen, I didn't pay for that. And so not only can you probably achieve outsized returns on a non-op when that AFE hits and you can say, well, there's a number of people out there just buying AFEs. And so you can go now sell those AFEs or you can decide to participate if it really makes sense. But not only is there the opportunity to make, I think, outsized returns on the non-op piece of the investment, but if you blend it with minerals and you're using the technical data and you're using the title to go build a minerals campaign. And when that AFE hits, now you have a development timing edge to actually go out and say, like, now I know where the rig is going. Now I know where the wells are being drilled with certainty. I think that that just further helps de-risk the minerals investment and anything you can do in minerals to de-risk development timing, your underwriting work in terms of type curves, production, figuring out what parent-child relationships actually look like on a unit-by-unit basis. I mean, if you can find the right non-op asset, we think there's some really unique ways to pair that with minerals and we're excited and we're definitely in the market for those sort of deals right now. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. No, I love that. I think that's that's a really interesting approach. You know, there's E&P mineral buying arm relationship that's developed in the private equity model. You know, you look at on the public side, Viper Diamondback, and then there's four point long point and then just just a slew of others, right? They're looking to achieve the same type of synergies, sharing technical data, line of sight on development, et cetera, et cetera, that helps enhance the mineral strategy. I got a question for you, and this came up in in a call last week, and I found it really interesting. You know, normally you wouldn't be that concerned with bankruptcies to the extent you are today. You know, even quote unquote good companies are, are gonna get taken out. They're gonna get restructured. 
these mineral companies that are the mineral buying arms of, of EMP shops, all of a sudden, if, if those EMP arms go upside down or get consolidated or restructured or whatever, what happens to the mineral arms? I know this might go into how they're structured and you know, I, I'm assuming most are in separate entities and everything. So I'm not saying they get pulled into bankruptcy, but that competitive edge, the, the control on the development they bought all the minerals under this operator. Now that operator is in the control of someone else or in control of the creditors that convert their equity. Any, any thoughts on that? I mean, I don't know if that question was really something that ever came onto people's radar before, but it definitely is going to now. Yeah. I mean, look, each of those entities is certainly structured very differently from a legal standpoint. So without knowing the specific structures, you know, I think let's just assume for the most part that it's two separately capitalized entities and there's an information sharing agreement between the two. And there's probably in exchange for the information sharing, they probably, they being the operator or the upstream EMP have some sort of series C promoted interest in the management series B promote. And so the good thing is I think the mineral companies will not be affected in terms of bankruptcy risk or anything like that. In a bankruptcy, the mineral owners continue to get paid. And so those, those mineral sidecars, let's call them, will continue to get paid even throughout a bankruptcy process. But, you know, the biggest risk, and this goes back to the early point that I was making uh, about my days at American Energy Partners, you know, you can have the perfect information, but the perfect information is worth zero if the upstream companies cannot live up to their drilling commitments. And so I view it more as a risk to the equity and what the equity dollars are worth. But the beauty of it is as a mineral company, you own these assets forever. And so you're able to, to keep kicking the can down the road, which isn't ideal in terms of what your equity valuation is going to look like when you go to monetize, there's the hold time issue, but it's not a solvency risk. So that's probably the way that I would think about that. Well, listen, this has been great, Josh. Let's wrap up the episode just with some closing comments. I mean, listen, I think through all the different questions we answered through this, the punchline is there's, there's some serious opportunity if you're in the right areas and you have cash. So on that, there's clearly where there's returns, capital will flow. Are there new types of investors that come into the mineral space here on the back end of the dust settling? Let me kind of take it this way. I think a lot of times there's a typical answer for what are the right type of investors for the space? And I think that I probably have a different view than a lot of people out there. And so the normal answer that I feel like everyone always gives is, well, LPs are the LPs and damage pensions. They are the ideal investor for this space. I totally, totally agree with that. But there are two issues that make that argument true. Obviously, from the cost of capital standpoint and the whole time perspective, you can't argue with that. If you have cheap capital and you can hold it for a long time, that works really, really, really well with the, this yield-oriented asset class and the fact that you own this asset class in to perpetuity. But I think contrary to popular belief, my honest view is where the true differentiated investment opportunity sits. And in my opinion, where the future of minerals investing is, is in energy private equity funds forming mineral funds to chase their own upstream drilling rigs. And the LPs are great. And the LPs are great for what their capital costs, 
and they're very patient and all that makes a ton of sense. But what the LPs don't bring to the table is an information edge. They don't bring to the table a war chest of data. They don't bring to the table the fact that a lot of these energy private equity funds are, are more or less a synthetic, large, publicly traded ENP. You know, throughout their 30 portfolio companies, let's say they have one rig running per portfolio company, that's 30 rigs running over a diversified asset base. And you think about all that information, all those rigs to chase. I mean, there's a massive opportunity to create, in my opinion, a large scale mineral company that really checks all the boxes in being able to de-risk the investment and achieve risk-adjusted outsized returns. In LP, they're going to bring you the capital and they're going to bring you the patient capital, but they're not going to bring you a war chest of information or a war chest of data. And so I think my answer is a little different there. I think every energy private equity fund should have some sort of mineral sidecar or some sort of minerals fund within it. And I also think, let's take it a step further, just the way private equity is going and the way a minerals fund would work that's going to be patient capital. That's going to be a 15-year fund, right? It's not going to be your typical seven to 10-year fund. So you might even get the patient capital with it. I think how private equity funds solve the cost of capital issue, I think is a TBD. And you know, I, I think we'll all be watching that very closely. But minerals needs to sit within these private equity funds where you just have a swath of information, a true information edge, and all the data at your fingertips to go out and execute a very, in my opinion, actionable mineral investing strategy. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a really good way to look at it. You know, uh, I think the NCAPs, the NGPs, you know, the Denims, whoever that, that have these larger portfolios of multiple companies, you have one really large minerals company with multiple basins within the company. So instead of having separate companies, you kind of have one bigger company. So, you know, you get the, the economies of scale advantage there. And then if market conditions turn and there is a chance to exit, you know, a a teacher's capital comes in and says, hey, I want to pay $5 billion in one, in one swoop or the public markets open up. You know, what, I think one of the challenges that hedge funds and others face with investing in the public companies that are in the mineral space is they're not big enough and they don't have enough trading volume. So now if, you, right. if the markets heal and you're able to go public in the future, if you have this behemoth machine, now you have that scale. And I don't know. Thanks for sharing that. Right. That was really interesting. Yeah. Um, sorry, I think you had one, one other question. Yeah, the, the floor is yours just to close it out with you know, a, a message on behalf of Perpetual to your peers, to the investment community, just uh, and you know, what, what you guys are, are focused on and what you want to do with partners and investors going forward. Well, yeah, Tim, thanks again. Um, you know, I think obviously just given where everything is right now, uh, the shutdown, the pandemic that we're in, I think first and foremost for everyone that's listening, you know, please stay safe out there and, you know, make sure to do your best to help our local, state and national economy. Um, you know, we, we, we all have a part to play in the recovery of the U.S. And I, I am highly confident that we will be able to come out of this bigger, better and stronger. Um, you know, I think for my industry peers, you know, I think it's important to really keep perspective during this downturn. Let's call a spade a spade. The EP industry has needed a reset for a long time. I do think that despite the short-term pain that we're all going through, 
the industry will come out much stronger. You know, American ingenuity will lead it and the entrepreneurial spirit, I think we'll see us through it. So, you know, that being said, you know, I would just encourage all of us to keep our head on a swivel and frankly buckle up because it is going to be a wild ride for the next couple of quarters. But I think that mineral companies specifically are going to reap a lot of benefits by remaining patient and prudent through this process. I, I think for the investors listening, the message is Perpetual's door is always open for business. And uh, our partnership with Silverhill uh, allows us to be able to create a lot of opportunity to work with our industry partners. And you know we're always interested in finding creative ways to work with operators, other mineral companies, non-op companies, and, you know, I would even throw midstream companies in the mix there too. And so, you know, if there are ways we can be helpful or add value within your current portfolio or within a new investment that you are looking at, we're here to discuss and if nothing else, brainstorm, you know, our goal is to be a good sounding board for others in the industry. So thanks a lot, Tim. Really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you. And, you know, keep safe and healthy. All the best to you and the family. And when planes and cars get back to their normal level of activity, we'll, we'll hopefully see you in person soon. All right, great. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate the time. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Oil & Gas Council represents the largest network of senior oil & gas executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Josh, then please email me at tim.powell@oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share the episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks. And see you next time.